This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Secretary Yellen also mentioned that Russia's war on Ukraine has caused major food supply disruptions across the world. That's Kathy Short in Lusaka reporting on U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's visit. Details coming up. Also, Egypt struggles with an economic crisis. Moroccan politicians vow to review relations with the European Union. And Russia's Wagner Group faces new sanctions. These stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Cameroon has denied an announcement that Canada will mediate the African country's separatist conflict, saying such a role was never mandated. Canada's foreign ministry last week announced that Cameroon and some separatist factions had agreed to a peace process with Ottawa assigned to help. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé, Cameroon. Cameroonian government spokesman René Emmanuel Sadi said Yaoundé has never entrusted any country with the role of facilitator or mediator with separatists in its western regions. In a statement Monday, Sadi said it was up to Cameroon's people, institutions and leaders to seek appropriate ways of solving problems facing their state. It was a response to Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolly on Friday announcing that Cameroon and some separatist factions had agreed to a peace process. Her statement said Ottawa had accepted a mandate to act as facilitator and called the agreement a critical first step toward peace. The Cameroonian government's denial of Canada's mediation deflated hopes for talks to end seven years of fighting that has left thousands of people dead and hundreds of thousands displaced. Esther Jomo Omam is the executive director of the aid group Reach Out Cameroon. People have been suffering, people have been in pain, and they believed that this Canada-led process for dialogue was a glimmer of hope that could lead us to a lasting solution for peace. The general opinion was that of relief and a sign of hope when the communique from the Minister of Communication came out with sample opinion and it was that of frustration. Canada responded to Cameroon's denial Monday saying it was in touch with both sides in the conflict and that Ottawa's statement still stands. Canada had said the parties to the agreement last week included at least six separatist groups, the Amazonian Governing Council, the Amazonian Defense Forces, the African People's Liberation Movement, the Southern Cameroon's Defense Forces, the Amazonian Interim Government, and the Amazonian Coalition. A spokesman for the Amazonian Defense Forces, Capo Daniel, says Yaoundé's backing out of the agreement shows it does not want peace. He says separatist groups will meet in the coming days to decide how to proceed. The Ambazonian Governing Council and all the other Ambazonian movements 
who formed the leading bloc that represents Ambazonia in the Ambazonia Cameroon Canada negotiation process have taken note of this document from Sadi. That is our only response. We have taken note. Some rebel groups like the Ambazonian interim government and the self-declared Republic of Ambazonia have rejected Canada-led talks. The groups have on social media said only armed conflicts would free the people of Ambazonia and English-speaking states they are fighting to carve out from French-speaking majority Cameroon. Cameroon's government says it is already implementing efforts for peace agreed to during a 2019 national dialogue on the separatist conflict. Several rebel groups, including those with leaders based in Europe and the United States, did not take part in that dialogue for fear of arrest. They asked Yaoundé to organize talks outside Cameroon with foreign mediators. Switzerland has also made attempts to mediate the conflict, but with little progress. Canada says the conflict has killed more than 6,000 people since 2017, displaced 800,000 and deprived 600,000 children of access to education. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News. Yawundi, Cameroon. The Egyptian pound has fallen by nearly 50% since last March, and annual headline inflation has climbed above 20%, its highest for five years. About 30% of Egyptians were living in poverty as of 2020, and economists estimate that poverty is on the rise. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has acknowledged that the situation is tough, but said the challenges are not of the state's making. Said Sadiq, professor of political sociology at the American University in Cairo, discussed the deteriorating economic conditions in Egypt with VOA senior analyst Mohamed al-Shinawi. Egypt is in a serious economic crisis. Inflation, foreign debt, unemployment, poverty, However, it is not in a catastrophe because it has many resources to rely on in the long run. The causes of the crisis are many-folded, ignoring priorities, ignoring many professional advice of experts. We have corruption. We have mismanagement of resources and priorities. And you cannot blame Ukrainian war or the coronavirus alone because it is strategically was not wise that your foreign currency reserves are over 80% owned by foreign Gulf states. This should have been addressed earlier with a step-by-step to deal with. Now, the current economic crisis will cause the following. Rise in crime rate, malnutrition, undernourishment, health problems, psychological problems, suicide, family disruption, rising divorce rate, declining marriage rate. This is all expected. But I do not believe that this is enough to change the regime because the regime depends on a lot of support from the outside, from Gulf states, from the EU, from the Americans, from Israel. And so this is not the cause that would lead to a big change. And also the opposition in Egypt is very disunited. It is too weak. 
weak. And so the idea that this economic crisis would lead to revolution by masses is unlikely. I don't see also a coup because many Middle East governments, including Egypt, had this custom of keeping a coup-proof tactics and measures. Most likely, we are going to continue with this economic crisis. It may improve next year, but this year, people will have to learn and adapt to living with inflation, living with lower income. It may be difficult, but gradually they would learn how to deal with lower income in buying goods like food in particular. Egypt started a new IMF deal, which includes $3 billion in financing to be paid in installments after reviews and is meant to push authorities to reduce spending and debt burden, permanently shift to a flexible exchange rate, and undertake structural reforms including scaling back the economic role of the state and the Egyptian military. Would that save the Egyptian economy? It requires a lot of time, and so I don't see that this is a short-term solution that would happen. The government needs to focus on industrial production and improving the tourism sector. Again, those economic reforms would take time. And so I don't see that we are going to see the results soon. But if they start, maybe after some time, and if they are really serious and the, the steps are well taken and monitored, maybe we will get improvement in a few years. To help cope with the crisis, Egypt had to request assistance from the Arab Gulf states like Saudi Arabia, which in the past provided help to Egypt in the form of deposits, grants, and energy supplies. However, Saudi finance minister signaled a shift in how it offers financial help to countries like Egypt, making future aid conditional on promises to revamp their economies. What would that mean for Egypt's economic It would mean more self-reliance, particularly at this Gulf states compete with Egypt in regional issues like gas production. It would also mean that they have to depend on other powers, not necessarily the Saudis. Egypt is still very much dependent on the Emirates and maybe also the Qatari. There is uh, this opening door with them. So it is possible that Egypt is going to shift a little bit. I don't think, however, that Saudis are going going to abandon Egypt because the strategic relations between Saudi and and Egypt is very important. Saudi Arabia faces a lot of challenges and they depend on Egypt to be on the side, especially vis-a-vis Iran. That was Said Sadiq, a professor of political sociology at the American University in Cairo. He spoke with my colleague Mohammed El Shenawi. Lawmakers in Morocco have voted unanimously to review ties with the European Parliament, which issued a resolution last week urging Rabat to respect freedom of expression and guarantee a fair trial to imprisoned journalists. Two of them, Omar Radi and Suleiman Raisouni, were imprisoned on rape and espionage charges. They say they were jailed for their opinions. Some members of Morocco's legislature accuse the EU of double standards, saying that Europe does not criticize press freedom in its neighbor and rival Algeria, an important energy exporter to France and other nations. Moroccan MPs called the EU resolution an unacceptable attack against the sovereignty, dignity and independence of the kingdom's judicial system. It says... 
the resolution seriously harmed fundamental trust between the two trading partners. But Free Press Advocacy Group Reporters Without Borders welcomed the EU move, calling it a break from 25 years of passivity. On the final day of her visit to Zambia, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen discussed climate-resilient food production and the global fallout from Russia's war on Ukraine. Kathy Short reports from Lusaka, Zambia. Her second day in Zambia, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said hunger and food insecurity are exerting a heavy toll on communities around the world. Secretary Yellen said it is for this reason the United States is taking strong and immediate actions to alleviate hunger. Yellen spoke Tuesday in Chongwe, east of the Zambian capital, Lusaka, where she met with several female farmers through the Green Climate Fund, which the U.S. is supporting through the United Nations. The project Climate Resilience of Agriculture Cultural livelihoods in agroecological regions in Zambia is aimed at helping small scale farmers better manage the impacts of climate change and alleviate hunger. The number of people facing acute food insecurity has risen to 345 million across 80 countries. In Zambia, around 2 million people face acute food insecurity and nearly half of the population is unable to meet their minimum caloric intake requirements. Secretary Yellen also mentioned that Russia's war on Ukraine has caused major food supply disruptions across the world. She said the U.S. will work closely with African countries like Zambia to develop its infrastructure and logistics capabilities. She underscored the African continent needs a robust capacity not only to grow food, but to ensure it can be cultivated, stored, and efficiently transported. And this difficult situation has been exacerbated by Russia's illegal war on Ukraine, which has further stressed food, fuel, and fertilized prices across the world. Secretary Yellen was accompanied to Chongwe by Zambia's acting agriculture minister, Gary Nkombo, who expressed gratitude for the U.S. support to Zambia. Nkombo said about 150 families have benefited from the U.N.-led program in Chongwe, which focuses on conservation farming. Last month, more than 40 African leaders met with members of the U.S. administration in Washington, which pledged to strengthen investments between Africa and the U.S. Kathy Short... For VOA News, Lusaka, Zambia. U.S. Treasury Secretary... In Burkina Faso, 62 women and girls were freed Friday night after being kidnapped late last week. The abductions occurred outside two villages near the northern city of Arbinda. The West African country used to be relatively stable and diversity was largely tolerated, but large swaths of the country, especially in the north and east have been taken over by extremist groups that have spilled over from neighboring Mali. The groups loosely associated with Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have killed thousands of people. Daniel Izenga, an expert on West Africa with the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, tells VOA's Carol Van Dam that under the current circumstances, the political disarray will likely continue for some time in Burkina Faso. They were essentially foraging in nearby forests looking for fruit and leaves that they could cook and eat. And this is a a byproduct of um, militant Islamist groups 
and other armed groups in the region, cutting off uh, these communities from some of the main thoroughfares through the, this part of the country. And so we've seen, um, for example, the area around Arbinda in Sum province um, has in December and January um, hit emergency levels of food insecurity. And so communities there essentially are just being pushed to the brink. And this is part of uh, the strategy of these armed groups. Um, it's a strategy of trying to control the territory, control what happens uh, for for those communities. Um, and it's and it's plausible or it's, it's possible uh, because the government is unable to provide um, sustained security for those communities. Um, there just isn't a significant enough security presence that can be sustained that keeps these armed groups at bay. The government, which is now run, I understand, by a military captain who threw out the military rulers who themselves had thrown out the democratically elected leader just months earlier, claimed the military wasn't doing enough to stop the jihadists, and that's why they threw out the other military rulers. It just seems like there's no one really in charge. What what can you tell us about this Ibrahim Traore? Is he doing any better? Yeah, uh, so unfortunately, no, uh, and and I think that that's not terribly surprising. So as, as you sort of mentioned there, uh, there were two military coups in, in a period of, of less than nine months. The, the initial coup uh, happened after a, a you know, series of scandals, the political headaches for the democratic elected regime and this you know, growing insecurity that they had been trying to confront. Um, that coup, that's the initial moment where you, you have kind of political disarray. Um, and so the security crisis becomes a political crisis and injected a lot of political instability into Burkina Faso. What's going to happen? And it's a huge distraction uh, for the security forces because you have to determine who's actually uh, at the top of the hierarchy. And how do you how do you make strategic decisions about confronting these kinds of armed groups? Um, and so that that happens anytime that there's a coup. And unfortunately, in Burkina Faso, we see with the second coup led by Captain Ibrahim Traore um, that indeed that instability is is within the military itself. Um, it's it was reported back in uh, late September, early October when the coup happened, when Traore's coup happened, um, that many members of the same junta were responsible for the second coup. And so you can see even within you know the junta that's purportedly ruling Burkina Faso, there's quite a bit of division. And this just does not bode well for any kind of governance, which is fundamentally the, the issue for Burkina Faso. Some report that as much as 40 percent of the country's territory is completely out of control. That's Daniel Izinga, an expert on West Africa and the Sahel at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies here in Washington. He was speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam. This is just breaking. The government of Rwanda says a fighter jet from the Democratic Republic of Congo crossed into Rwandan territory a short time ago. On Twitter, the government said defensive measures were taken. Videos circulating on social media today show what appears to be a jet being hit by missiles. Other videos appear to show a damaged DRC jet on the runway at an airport in the city of Goma. Independent news media have not yet confirmed the incident. 
incident. The two governments have been at odds over Kinshasa's allegations that Rwanda backs the M23 rebel group in the eastern DRC. Rwanda denies that and says the DRC shelters the FDLR militants who oppose the Kigali government. VOAAfrica.com will update the story as more information becomes available. The government of Eswatini has criticized speculation it may have been responsible for the killing of well-known human rights lawyer Tulani Masiko and pledged to investigate. Maseko, who was shot dead at his home Saturday, was an outspoken critic of the government, which rights groups say made him a target in the past. Human rights groups, Western embassies, and the UN have all expressed concern over the killing. Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg, South Africa. Most accounts Tulani Maseko, shot dead by unknown gunmen at his home over the weekend, was one of Eswatini's shining lights, a rare critical voice in Africa's last remaining absolute monarchy. The 52-year-old, a former fellow at American University's Washington College of Law, was not only a human rights lawyer, but also a prominent opposition politician and columnist. He was a thorn in the side of the government of Eswatini, formerly known as Swaziland, and had been jailed for more than a year in 2014. Maseko's death came just hours after the king, Maswati III, spoke against activists challenging his rule. Robert Shavambu is Amnesty International's Southern Africa spokesman. The cold-blooded unlawful killing of Tulani Maseko offers a chilling reminder that human rights defenders, especially those at the front of calling for political reform in Eswatini, are not safe. If they are not being persecuted, harassed or intimidated by the state, they are at risk of losing their lives. Maseko's family deserves justice. His killers must be brought to trial. Shavambu said any investigation must be conducted separately from the government and its agencies. Eswatini, a small kingdom bordering South Africa and Mozambique and a former British colony, has been ruled by the king since 1986. He has absolute power and has regularly been accused of human rights abuses. In 2021, there were large pro-democracy protests that resulted in several deaths. Eswatini government spokesman Alfius Mnumalo hit back at what he said were unjust insinuations on social media that the government had any hand in Maseko's killing. The position of government is the same. We are baffled, we are taken aback, and we are very disappointed that you are quoting political activists in the country in South Africa who are blaming government for the murderous uh, crime that has been committed against the person of uh, Mr. Masego. Government have got no, absolutely no hand in the matter of Mr. Masego. He said an investigation was underway into who was responsible. Mr. Masego has been doing human rights uh, activism in this country for a long time. He has been out to schools internationally, came back, continued with his agenda. He was absolutely no threat whatsoever at any given time as we were pursuing our political agenda in the country. Amnesty Shivambu said Maseko's death, which already has sent a chilling message to pro-democracy activists across the country, may signify an escalation in attacks against those who are openly seeking political reforms.
The story has made international headlines with United Nations human rights chief Volker Turk urging an impartial investigation into the killing. The U.S. embassy in Eswatini expressed profound sadness at the murder, while the EU voiced grave concern about the rights situation in Eswatini. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Johannesburg. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, Bob Bass, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.